Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. recording yeah i already did oh you did yeah because otherwise we miss some of the funnest parts of our conversations that's (laughs) true we start having a side conversation and then everybody's like oh i should have been recording that so yeah Yeah, definitely i'll just go ahead and start we want to welcome you esther we're so grateful to have you on so i thought maybe show how we're sort of connected i thought it would be interesting for you and i to kind of tell the story of how how we met, how we figuratively met online. It was one of those moments that I will never forget because it was right at the time when I was right in the thick right of... Right there, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Tom, my uncle, had just died. And the two of us have... Uh, the two of us are friends with Tom's wife, who, by the way, Tom's wife is freaking awesome. She has been so good to me. Tom's kids have been so good to me. It's a really unique circumstance where the family of the abuser and the abused actually hold a lot of space for each other and have a lot of care. And, you know, I I didn't know my cousins at all. I didn't even know their names or how many there were before this happened with Tom, but they, they were so kind to me. And Kelly also was so kind to me and they, they have been so supportive of my journey. And even though this is like the worst thing that could happen to them to lose their dad and the grandpa and husband and all that, they, they have never tried to stifle me or ask me to be quiet or, or anything they've been they've been so kind like like more kind than I would even expect from them and so Kelly has become one of my really really close friends through this and um so what had happened was we were sort of in the thick of of all of our emotions with this as I was reading through the comments I wasn't quite sure yet 
what kinds of things I should be saying. And I was trying to keep my emotions in check and not be like, not take things personally or not be offended by things. Or I was trying to even understand what, what my own position on this was going to be. I hadn't necessarily decided to, to do advocacy work yet. And I saw that you were commenting in the same post, but I did not understand what you are saying. Uh-huh. And I, I remember making the conscious choice of, I'm not going to jump to conclusions to what she's saying, and I'm not going to be offended. I'm just going to ask why. And so that's, I asked you this, I, I simply wrote the word why. And you replied to me part of your story and the two of us just really instantly connected. And I, I was so happy in that moment that neither one of us had taken offense to each other. I was so happy that we strived to understand what each other was saying. And it turned out that we, ha- we have so much in common and our stories were so similar. And honestly... I mean, you've been one of my most important connections since this whole thing started. And so I just always have thought that that was just such a unique moment because it could have gone a different way. Right. You know? Yeah, it really could have. And to be honest, I had just become friends with Kelly. Um, And... I mean, I knew who Kelly was, and I wanted to show her support. I did not know who Kelly was other than what um, had just happened, and I felt strongly that she needed as many supporters as possible. Um, And I can't remember exactly what she had posted, but it had something to do with, is it possible to love somebody who has abused or hurt somebody. And I remember instantly. So one thing I've struggled with is taking things personally. So it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, that you had made a conscious decision to say, okay, I'm not going to be offended. I, you know, um, and I kind of also, made the conscious decision in your reply as your why to, you know, try and verbalize without coming across as I'm right or that um, this is how it needs to be done. Um, and, yeah, we we made that connection. And I, I don't really believe in it was meant to be, but I do definitely think that it was part of both of our growth and healing and right about that time I actually became friends with Kendra as well and I had absolutely no idea how all of this would intertwine together so it's it's actually pretty amazing so Uh, really I mean when you're when you're within um ex-mormon world it feels like the whole world, like you're either in the church or you're an ex-Mormon, and you're, it's, it's all of our world. It, it feels so big to us. But in the reality of the grand scheme of things, Mormonism really isn't that big of a deal on, right. on 
you know, on the world stage, but because it's such an all-encompassing religion, and when you re- when you leave that religion, it feels so. It it feels like it tears your entire world apart. That that it sort of becomes. Um, your community feels really big, even though in the reality, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. But yes. within that community, there are subsets of of people who have experienced extreme trauma. You know, yeah. we yeah. to to some degree, as we we leave the church, we experience religious trauma. Yeah, definitely. I think we don't really understand the level of religious trauma that we've endured our whole lives until we leave it, until we can actually start deconstructing it. And then when we deconstruct it, it's therapeutic, but it's also um, heartbreaking and soul-crushing. I'm in this really weird space where, like, I feel like I don't need to identify as, like, an ex-Mormon because... It's weird. I'm super. The, I'm super proud of like my heritage and my ancestors and the pioneers that crossed, which are my ancestors, because I really feel like they were doing what they thought was best, you know. Um, but so I want to hold on to that piece because that's part of my story. But yet I don't think that. I need to identify as former Mormon, ex-Mormon, anti-Mormon, but it's it's staying there to be supportive because so many people are struggling, you know? And so mm-hmm. I yeah. have a hard time leaving, yet part of me feels strongly pulled to, to leave that behind and that more growth can come from moving forward and maybe only revisiting that as needed so yeah totally. um, but it's been it's not officially but it's been 10 years for me mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's been almost five for me now okay. no actually almost almost four yeah i think i'm on like 26 so <laughs> i've been out like i've been out longer than i was ever in and I would have never have known that this community existed at all if Tom hadn't died. I like I literally was not aware of it at all. Wow. Not, I I was not part of any of the groups. I did not know they existed. Um, when my little brother connected me with Lindsay Hansen Park, um, when I was trying to come forward, I had no idea who she was. I had never heard of her podcast. I didn't know. I, I I had never heard terms like post-Mormon or nuanced Mormon or progressive Mormon. I had never heard any of that. So, like, I'm in this really weird place where I have resolved my my Mormonism in myself. Like, like I'm, I've lived more of my life completely separated from it than I did part of it. But also, I never had this opportunity to have a community that sort of understood my upbringing and why there's certain things in my in my life that are, um, you know, parts of those religious traumas because I, d- I didn't get to process through those with people who understood. And yeah. even 
even my own children, we, we left when my uh, second daughter was born. And so even my own children don't know what the Mormon doctrines are. They don't know the Mormon scriptures. They didn't experience the Mormon church. So even with that in our own family, I didn't have that community to kind of say, you know, this is why I do things this way, or this is why some things are traumatic for me, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I think also I, something that I had, I had noticed with my husband and I is that when he, so he stopped believing back in the year 2000, somewhere around there, and um, but we stayed married for, and we're still married, it's been 25 years, so um, him leaving in 2000, me not leaving until like 2018, he didn't really, he did his own deconstructing, but he was also trying to make space for me being in the church and uh, make space for his part of being a part of my life while I was in the church. So he would still go to church with me. He would still try to encourage the kids to go to church with me. And I looked back and I think, you know, I, I don't think I could have done that for him. Like how I'm deconstructing yeah. the church right now with everything yeah. that I've been through and all the things that I've learned and all the things that I've experienced with my letter and everything with the first presidency. I don't think that I would be able to give him the grace and stay with how much um, trauma it causes in a relationship, too. And I do, think, you think, do you think he... He went through as much trauma as you did? Um, I think he probably did in the very beginning, but it was it was compounded by the trauma in our relationship of him leaving. And on that, top of that, it was also, um, like, during the time that he was deconstructing, he if he was angry and, and frustrated and um, having a hard time with the deconstructing part, he wasn't really sharing that with me as much. But now that I've left and now that I've been deconstructing, he's angry, you know, he's angry yeah. now right along with me because he can right. be because he can start he to kind of talk about these things and, and deconstruct and, and reason through some things that have really been very harmful, not only to him, but our marriage and also our family and to me and to other people. And he's he's seeing it fine. Like he saw it before, but he's ab he's ab He's able to talk about it now. He's able to verbalize yeah. his, his anger and frustration. So, I'm actually glad you said that because I think I can sort of identify with him on that where I had like this big 25-plus year span of, of having nothing at all to do with the church, not mm -hmm. ex-Mormonism, not yeah. nothing. I had nothing to do with it. And now all of a sudden there's this community and, and I didn't ever really have the opportunity to process some of these things. But also I think it's interesting to, to look at the different intersections that people have. You know, the three of us identify as women and, and that's one of our intersections with, with Mormonism too, that brings its own unique challenges and Another intersection is that, that we have uh, sexual trauma, you know. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of, lots of different intersections, and, and everybody does. And it doesn't make one better than the other. But it, it's nice when you can kind of identify those intersections and find, like, 
community or commonality. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it can be really healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, with that, do we want to have uh, Esther tell her story and, and we'll try not to interrupt you too much and just kind of allow you to flow? Absolutely. Um, yeah. But if you have questions, please, please ask them. Cause sure. if you have questions, I'm sure the listeners probably do as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I started second guessing myself just a little bit like, Oh, my story is probably not as traumatic as, you know, somebody else's. And like, does this really deserve to be heard? Um, and interestingly enough, I've been really focusing on healing and, um, on growth, you know, through my journey and working on shadow work, um, facing the things that aren't the greatest characteristics of myself and then listing the trauma that I've been through Mm -hmm. and seeing how those characteristics are, have a lot to do with the trauma that I've been through and they're basically defense mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, and I agreed. I don't know. I don't remember when you asked me to do this, Dana. It was, I don't know, four or five days ago. But um, instantly, I started having all of this past trauma stuff resurface, like, the next day. Yeah. And I am like, oh, my gosh, I am not ready to do, not this podcast, but to deal with this. And... And I was like, you know what, this is the perfect time because Mm -hmm. I do feel like I'm ready. And this is just presenting itself for me to grow. Um, And so I really am grateful for this opportunity. I've wanted to share my story for a long time. And um, I woke up today and the first thing on my Facebook feed was a meme that said there is someone out there that needs to hear your story right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, That's I, true. I'm I'm very very grateful for this opportunity. Um, I I'm gonna start with a quote that I made myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it actually was just a thought. Um. But children who are taught to sweep abuse under the rug become adults who live there. Mm -hmm. Mm. Under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. It's very good. Um, So, sorry, guys. It's okay. Take your time. This isn't easy Um, work. (laughs) Just a little bit of, like, history that kind of pertains to this, but I'm the youngest of four daughters. Um, My oldest sisters are 15 and 13 years older than me, so they're quite a bit older than me. Um, Gosh, I was three when um, my second oldest sister moved out, and all of them moved out fairly quickly after high school. Um, Their, I should say, our home life wasn't that great, so they were ready to get out and be gone. 
Um, I have a third sister who's five years older than me, so we're closer, but we're not too terribly close. And we are complete opposites. She's, like, demure and quiet Mm -hmm. and, like, to me, perfect in every way. And I was the mischievous, like, always kind of wanting to, like, roughhouse, um, get into a little bit of trouble. Nothing too serious, but I liked to cause problems. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I always did feel like the black sheep of the family a bit. Um, my dad left on my seventh birthday. He told me that was my birthday present and walked out. And so I definitely have always struggled with abandonment issues Mm -hmm. and seeking approval from men. So um, when he left, I noticed that one of my uncles started to, you know, really pay attention to me and um, give me attention, which I appreciated a lot um, as a child, and I felt very loved by him. Um, He was very fun, um, but there were certain things he would do that seemed inappropriate, but I really just thought it was fun. The, the first thing that I can remember, and really the only thing that stands out in my mind, is um, he'd, like, chase me and catch me and then, like, give me kisses on the head, but then it would turn to kisses on the ear, and then he'd start sucking on my ear. Hmm. Um, and to me, it tickled. Like, I thought it was funny. Um and so I, I thought there was nothing wrong with that. He tried that with my older sister, who's five years older, and she basically um, didn't like it, was like, stop, you know, and, and wouldn't give him the time of day. And looking back, I can see that was how he groomed people, you know, to see who was willing to put up with stuff. I remember being in the back of the car with him once, and I think his wife, who's my mom's sister, I think my, my aunt and my mom were in the front of the car, and he was in the back with me, and he did that in the back. And for some reason, it's like my mom knew what was going on, but, you know, didn't say anything. And that's always kind of stuck with me as to why. And as I go through my story, I think I figured it out, but I don't know. So, um... Just when you think you have it figured out, more will surface. <laughs> that's true. And then you start no, dealing with true. other shadows that you didn't know you had, and you start right. dealing with other things that you realize are connected. And um, yeah. so not to tell you that it's never going to end. It's It gets easier as you talk about it more and more often. But yeah. um, I well, think... in particular, I think 
I figured out why she never mentioned anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I remember the day specifically. Um, It was July 3rd, 1992. And the reason I remember the date is because the 4th of July was a huge thing for me. Um, we'd go to our city's big celebration, and my favorite thing to do were the foot races. They'd do foot races for each, like, specific age, and I would always win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, I wanted to go. Um, so my mom and aunt, we, we went to my aunt's home, and my mom and aunt... They were always into, I almost want to say, like, energy work back then Mm. Um, and holistic ways of healing and herbal supplements and things. So they they would get together periodically and kind of do their thing. Um, And there were no other kids there, really, so I was bored. And they had just moved into a new home, so I kind of decided that I would um, explore their house. And I ended up going downstairs and found my uncle who was watching TV and just kind of looking around. And he kind of patted the couch and said, come sit by me. And so I did. And I sat down and... A few minutes later, you know, his arms around me and then, like, bringing me in closer to him, which I loved. I always loved physical attention. Um, And then it went from um, sitting next to him really closely to him kind of putting me half on his lap, half not, and then, you know, scooting more right on his lap. And I distinctly remember him, like, rubbing my shoulder and squeezing me. And unfortunately, like, I could tell that he was getting an erection. And I didn't understand what that was. But it was like, this is weird. And it it made me uncomfortable. But, um, and he started kissing on my ears, which tickled, and I'm giggling and laughing and moving around on his lap. And then he put his hand, like, on my stomach, and then it went um, to, you know, under my shirt, kind of rubbing my tummy um, higher. Didn't ever get too high to my, you know, chest. Um, And then... um, And then he got his hand out from under my shirt and on top of my lower abdomen. And then his hand went in between my legs and started rubbing. This is outside of the clothes. Um, And instantly I'm like, wait a second. This This is not right. But I didn't know, really. But I did. It's so weird. Um... And that, it stayed like that for a little while. Um, And then he started unbuttoning my pants. 
and put his hand back on my abdomen and started rubbing on top of my underwear and then slowly like under my, the elastic of my underwear and, you know, down further. And I can't remember when this happened, but I remember like freezing and being like, Hey, this, this is inappropriate. And I remember turning my head to the right because I was kind of, I was on his lap. He, his head was like left to the left behind me. So I turned my head to the right and I remember seeing the stairs going upstairs and I knew that's where my mom and aunt were. And I distinctly remember him moving his head toward my ear and just laughing in my ear and that to me was validation that he knew I was scared and he was having some sort of power trip from from laughing Mm -hmm. um before much else happened I heard my mom yell my name and I instantly was like okay this is my time to leave because I've been yelled for. So I, I got up, I did my pants up and ran up the stairs and ran to them. They were at the kitchen table. They'd fixed lunch for us. And I could hear my uncle coming up, um, the stairs. I sat down at the table, we were eating and I was trying not to make eye contact with him because yeah, he was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I did, he just kind of would wink at me, kind of do that laugh again somehow. And I was just absolutely terrified. Um, in in my mom's journal after she passed, I actually saw a um, entry from her saying that she knew something was wrong and she was asking me on the drive home what was wrong. And she's like, she wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't answer my questions. I don't specifically remember shutting down, but that would make sense that I did. Mm -hmm. And the next day when we were supposed to go to the 4th of July, um, I remember I didn't want to go. And my mom's like, are you kidding me? You, you always go. And I think that's really the only reason I remember the date. Mm. Um, so I, I lived with that for a while. And I do want to mention here, I don't know if other people have mentioned this, but Part of the reason this was so conflicting and I thought that I had done something wrong is because I felt like it was something that shouldn't have happened, but I also remember the feeling that it felt good. So I was, you know, internalizing, well, if it's wrong, then why did I like it? Mm -hmm. And... So I felt a lot of guilt for, for feeling that way. Um, so I, yeah, I, I went, 
So the next year, July 3rd, 1994, I just happened to be traveling with my competitive soccer league and um, we were in California playing in the World Cup and um, I just remember feeling so alone, like on that anniversary. That I was still so alone. Um, I, I don't know when, so my story, like, the initial abuse wasn't, like, repetitive, but as you'll see, abuse played down the line in my life, but, um, it was just, I don't know, <laughs> it was just something that I'm like, why, why am I struggling with this, you know? I wasn't raped, I wasn't, like, and, um, I, I really struggled with it, so, um. So, Esther, something yeah. I think about with what you're saying is, um, we, as children, we're trusting, you know, we give people our trust very easily. Right. We, even when something, um, that somebody else has done to us, um, it, you know, whether it feels good or whether it doesn't feel good or whether it's confusing, um, it's always their fault. Yeah. It's never your fault. And it's never yeah. something that we as survivors should have to feel guilty for, but we do. You know, we, yeah. we have been um, raised in a, in a fundamentalist religion that tells us that, you know, sex is bad unless you're procreating. You know, right. um, sex before marriage is bad. Nobody should be touching your private parts. You know, you shouldn't even be touching right. your own private parts. Well, you should, like, die, you know, for to save your yeah. virtue. Yeah, die like, yeah, to you save should. your virtue. So you have an you uncle. Be... You have an uncle that's telling you, or that's not saying any words, really. But he's he's doing things that are making you uncomfortable and breaking that trust when he was giving you what you needed as a child. Yeah. He was giving you the things that you needed from feeling abandoned from your father, you know? I mean, yeah. these are my assumptions. I'm I'm making right. guesses, but but then you you trust him completely and what does he do? You you know, your mom is trusting him completely too by allowing you to be alone with him. Right. And, and he's breaking that trust and making it to a point that you don't feel safe anymore. And not only right. do you not feel safe with him, but you don't feel safe to determine whether or not you can trust yourself to know who to trust. Right. Yeah. Dana, were you going to say something? Yeah. I wanted to also point out, too, that when, when we're thinking about our stories... We are now adults, and our brains are fully formed, mm -hmm. and the way we process information it is um, completely different than how we did as a kid. And so sometimes the feelings get confused because we are applying an expectation of an adult mind to a child brain. Definitely. That makes and a lot of sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And so we feel feelings now based on our, our logic and our experience that we couldn't have possibly been able to process at that age. Like, 
your brain, I think, I, I don't know exactly, but I think the studies are um, your brain's not fully formed until you're 26. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that's that's really important. And he was communicating with you. That laugh communicated yeah. everything. Right. And it set the tone for how you should feel about it. Like he commu- he put the power over you. He communicated to you that that he had the power, that it was shameful and embarrassing, and that he and that he knew it. Yeah. And so I think that's really important too because a lot of this is why sometimes it's really hard to go through the legal system and stuff too, because the expectations are for adult brains placed on a on a child on a on a child's body. Mm-hmm. You know, right. why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that? We get those questions externally from other people, but we ask those questions to ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then not not only is it the act that that was committed upon you, but it's all of the blame and uh, questions and why didn't I do this or why did I feel that way or how come I froze or why did it feel good? How did I participate? Am I complicit in this? Did, is part of this my fault? Did I open myself up to this? And sometimes I think... Everybody needs to realize that that all of those questions don't even they aren't even registered in a child's mind. They've never been they, it's it's not like they um it's not like they have sexual relationships where they consent and they know what feels good and they know what what doesn't. It's something that's completely shocking, and you just do not have the skills. Like, no chi- no child has the skills. There, there's not a child that has the skills to know what to do or know what to say. There are only children who have trauma responses. Some, sometimes their response might be to run. Sometimes it's to freeze. Sometimes it's to disassociate. But they don't have the ability. They don't even have the ability to consent to it. That they don't have the ability. Even we have to give ourselves a little bit of credit because even if 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 you were like welcoming it, you still don't have right. the ability to mm-hmm. consent to right. to something like that. Yep. Right. And so, I think when people who haven't experienced. Um, child sexual assault there's all these questions about how come how come you can remember what day it is but you don't remember what time or how come you can remember Mm -hmm. what you were wearing but you don't remember what day it is and you would think that if you were abused you could remember what year well no no you don't because children aren't processing information the same way adults are they aren't registering the certain things the same way an adult would well, and even as an adult, you know, that kind of trauma causes your brain to lapse, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not even it's not even just children. It's it's 
it's your brain trying to protect you the only way it knows how. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's very unhealthy ways, you know? Um, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to make this political in any way, but (laughs) with Trump running for president and Kavanaugh's, you know, court hearings. Yes. Like, it is, it is so traumatic for survivors of abuse, sex abuse, to Mm -hmm. go through that. And it's like, I feel for her. I believe her. Um, And I understand exactly why, you know, why she didn't have answers to some things. And it is terrifying to go through the correct legal you know, the legal process. It's mm-hmm. terrifying. Um, and I think it's, I don't want to say this because I've never been a victim as a male, but there's so much power with men and we feel inferior. And, you know, to, to go in front of, you know... A judge who I would say are mostly men. Um, mostly men are cops. I'm not saying there aren't women judges and women mm-hmm. cops, but it's revisiting, you know, face to face being with with a man, and that yeah. in and of itself is very traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Let me interject something here. When I was being interviewed by my detective, who yeah. I loved, by the way, he was, he was, I, I loved him. He's one of my heroes. But one of the questions he asked me is, what did it feel like? And I was so caught off guard because, like, how do you answer that to a man mm-hmm. sitting across? What does it feel like? What yeah. do you think it feels like? You it know, sounds like abuse. Damn it! Yeah, yeah. Like he was, he was. Yeah. You know, he apologized. And he tried to do it in a trauma-informed way, and he said, "I know this is a difficult question, but it's something I have to ask." And he, and he was like, like he was asking, like, what it literally felt like not what my emotions were but what what were the sensations that I was feeling Mm. and to have to say something like that to a man I I was lucky because I had built a rapport with my detective Mm -hmm. um I actually want to get him on our podcast but but for for the majority, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Would you say, like, the majority of women having to, to answer those kinds of questions to men is in itself re-traumatizing? Definitely. I think so. I mean, how can it not be, yeah. you know? Um, well, if us processing things over and over and over again, trying to make sense of everything over and over and over again... And trying to reprocess it to make sure it's not based on, you know, something I did wrong. If we're doing that over and over and over again, and that's traumatizing, you know, and we're trying to do it in healthy ways, then how, just like uh, Esther said, how could it not be traumatizing? 
Um, sorry. I want to I... say one more thing okay. too. Sorry. No. Also, fine. like this process of watching this shit come out on TV too, and mm. you hear all the people questioning the women who have come forward mm. and casting doubt. And, and calling them prostitutes or calling them different things or, or saying they're lying. Or saying lying. she asked for it. Yeah. Yes. And that, not necessarily in those words, but very much indicating wealth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Should we be surprised? Those, those are such painful, and I don't know about you guys, but the way I process sadness, pretty much the way I process almost all of my emotions is anger. Mm-hmm. And I just get so fucking angry, just so angry. Yeah. Because if you're saying that about them, you're saying it about me too. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 And I've the- absolutely felt the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we were not believed, right? Right. <laughs> or we weren't able to speak up when it was when we should or could have or you know whatever whatever they try well, to tell us. But and the what's thing is. So- Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I'm just saying that there's there's a pattern that we all know very well that people are not going to come forward with their abuse until their adult brain can handle the processing of it. So right. a lot of us don't come forward until we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s. Some people never come forward at all. Yeah. Um, I just think I was going to mention this as I was telling my story and then I'm like, it's not important, but now it's coming up again. So I'm going to say it. The spirit is telling me that, that I should (laughs) say this. Um, I remember in fifth grade, um, my teacher specifically asking, uh, not asking, but talking about abuse and saying, you know, if anything ever happens, um, you can come to me, to the principal, um, And we kind of made an oath that we would report abuse, whether it was something that happened to us or something that happened to somebody else. And um, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, of course, of course I'd come forward. Well, it just goes to show that until you really have been in any situation, it's very difficult to know what you're going to do, you know? Because I, I even thought several times, like, I, I said that I would come forward, but I can't. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself also made me feel guilty. Because even though I was mischievous and, like, liked to cause problems, I was also very much, like, a rule follower. And I've always tried hard to keep my promises. Mm-hmm. And that was really, that caused a lot of guilt for me as well. Um, when I would think about coming forward and saying something. So, um, I don't remember how long after it happened. It was at least a year. Cause like I said, I remember being by myself the, the year, a year it happened. And, um, But my sister, who's five years older than me, um, and I were watching Oprah. And we all know that Oprah was a very big... um, Advocate. Yeah, 
thank you. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> a very big advocate for for coming forward and um, having those people needing them to be held responsible. So um, right at the end of one of her shows, it, I'm sure it was on abuse. Um, she just kind of closed the show saying, you know, if, if this has happened to you, you're not alone. Um, I, I want you to know that there's people out there to help you. And, um, you know, it's, it's okay. Come forward. And I had this immense feeling of, I need to say something it's like now or never, I need to say something. And I was still young. I would say I was at least, thir well, 13 or 14. So it'd been, probably been a couple years. Um, and I turned to her and I just said, you know, I care about you and I want to make sure you're okay. Has anything like this ever happened to you? Mm. And she was like, no, mm -mm, no, luckily I've never had to deal with that. And I remember saying a prayer in my heart, like, please ask me the same question. Please ask me the same question. Because I was too afraid to just come out and say it. And there was silence. And then, and I thought, you know, I got this really sad, heavy heart thinking she's not going to ask. And then she turned to me and she's, you know, what about you? And that's when I first mentioned anything. Um, so she was very concerned and she's like, we have to tell mom. And I was like, please don't tell mom, please don't tell mom. Um, so she immediately called my older sisters and they they were like, uh, yeah, mom needs to know about this. And I remember when she came home from work, my mom, I had a day bed and I ran and hid under my day bed and was just hiding. Like, I, I don't know why I could not look at my mom. I guess I just felt guilty. Um, I know she held my uncle in high regard. You know, I'm letting down my uncle. I'm letting down my mom. Like, and I don't remember her exact reaction, but she left the room and I just remember an overwhelming feeling of, I don't think she believes me. Mm. And I'll be honest, I kind of did do a lot of things for attention, and I, I had a little bit of a lying problem. To me, it was an imagination problem. Mm -hmm. Like, one time, we, my best friend and I in, like, fourth grade told everybody we were identical twins that were separated at birth, <laughs> and we would try to have matching clothes every day. <laughs> And tell people, we just, you're, you're laughing really hard, Kendra. But <laughs> it just sounds um, like something I would have done as a, as a kid, too. And, so. and we would try to convince people, no, we're just identical. And like, we, we didn't plan this outfit out at all. Well, it <laughs> got back to my mom. 
And she was like, you are a liar. Mm. You are like, she called my teacher and was like, she has to stand in front of the class and apologize to everybody. Mm. And it was like, oh my gosh, like it was super traumatic. But that's how my mom was like very, yeah, very Bruce R. McConkie, but Mm. for a woman, just, yeah, wow. Um, so I don't know if she was in denial. I, I don't know if she was feeling guilty for not knowing, or maybe she did know and I didn't know she knew. I, and I'll never have the answers because I didn't really talk to her about this before, at least in depth before she passed away. But I felt horrible that I didn't want her to know, and she did, and I just didn't feel the support that I needed from a mom. Um, I do, however, remember her saying, just don't tell your dad. And I kind of need to, I'm going back a little bit, but once my dad left, he really wasn't involved in my life at all. Um, we lived on a farm and he would come and do like farm stuff, but he wasn't taking me overnights every other weekend. We didn't have like weekly nights that he would come. So he really was super uninvolved. And, um, for some reason, when she said that again, I think it's your brain trying to protect you, but I got this overwhelming feeling of that must mean my dad would like probably grab a shotgun and blow his head off. Mm. Like, and I felt really like loved by, by that comment. Mm. And maybe, like I said, maybe it was the mental gymnastics my brain played on me. Um, so shortly after um, I, my sister did call the cops or DCFS. I, I don't know. I remember being interviewed by a detective or a child advocate. And, you know, I had to be very specific in details on what happened. Um, and when I left that meeting, I was crying because going into detail is never fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the last I ever heard of anything. I never went back to another meeting. I never, like, it was just dropped for whatever reason. I don't know. So you um, just don't know what happened? Mm-mm. So... Is, is your uncle still alive? He's not. Okay. I'll get to that story. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to make you jump ahead. But, um, so... Shortly after my uncle, I guess, made a phone call to my mom, and my mom informed me that he and my aunt were coming to our house to apologize. And I I didn't want him there, but yet I really did. Like, I was going to tell him off. Um, so they showed up. And I remember meeting in my living room and sitting down 
And he went into detail about how he doesn't know what happened. Um, he got carried away. This has never happened before. Um, you know, it'll never happen again. And he's going to go to his church of church leaders and repent and blah, freaking blah. And I really wanted to tell him off, but the way I was raised is to always respect and obey your elders, right? And forgive, right? And yes, and forgiveness, which plays into my story as well. So um, I was terrified if I told him off, I would get in trouble from my mom for speaking like that to an adult. Um, so I just remember kind of scooting to the end of the couch and looking at him intently and saying, I trusted you. And, and I stood up and walked out. So I felt like I got my point across. Um, but it was also very hard for me because other people didn't know and I'd hear about how, you know, he was a temple worker and had helped like design the South Jordan or the Jordan River Temple and all of these things. And so, you know, I'm trying to make it okay because I made mistakes as a kid and I don't know. So, um, One thing I have to mention, because I feel like it pertains to the whole of the story, is when I was, like, 14, I then was dating, had a boyfriend um, who, I mean, looking back, I'm like, I I really feel like I loved him the best way a 14-year-old could. Um, we dated for like two, two and a half years. And of course, when, when we were alone, we, we let things get a little too comfortable and I ended up having sex with him for like six months. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I think that's the whole needing a male and needing to be loved and feeling, you know, like I, somebody wants me um and well when my mom found out that was not good at all and um I remember coming home from a soccer tournament and all of my stuff was on the front yard and I like walked up and she answered the door and she said I would rather be burying you in the ground than dealing with an unrighteous daughter and she shut the door in my face and thank you to like Brigham Young Mm -hmm. and his journal of discourse stuff um that's like definitely something that you know she or probably Bruce R. McConkie too but it was like yeah no this I I will be disowning you and Spencer W. Kimball too Huh? Spencer W. Kimball, too. Miracle right. of Forgiveness, yeah. you know? Right. The damage so that those things have done. I had no idea what was happening. I just kind of stood there, and lo and behold, like, shortly thereafter, my dad 
comes to pick me up. I have no relationship with this man whatsoever. Mm. And I was like, oh, no. And as a side note, my dad has kind of always creeped me out. And my sisters. I don't know why. He just does. So I was sent to live with my dad. Um, I would call my mom bawling, saying, please, I'm so sorry. I won't date him anymore. And it was like, no. And soon she didn't answer my phone calls. Um, But that first day with my dad, he... You know, he's like, I want you to know that I still love you. I I don't think you did anything wrong, but I do think you're too young to understand that type of a relationship. Um, and I'm like, okay, but it was weird talking to him. Um, and then he said, but I do want to ask you a couple of questions. Is that okay? And I was like, I guess. And he's like, well, do you feel like you really loved him? You know, things like that. And then he turned to me in the car and he's like, I'd really like to know if you were able to climax. Like that. And I remember feeling the very same feeling I did with my uncle and like freezing and being like, oh my gosh, like this is not okay. So. Basically, I really can't remember how long I lived with him. It honestly, it was probably at least three months. It could have been four, maybe six, but it was probably around six to eight months, I'm going to guess. But I absolutely hated being there because I I was nervous to walk around in a towel. I just, I felt like he really, really was a creep himself. So... Um, eventually my mom let me move back in. I had very strict rules to follow. Um, my ex-boyfriend was in our ward. So like, she's like, I don't want you looking at him. I don't want to see you talking to him in the halls. Like, and so I was very much like, I in no way want to, um, ever go back and live with my dad. So I just have to do this. Um, so in the meantime, you know, the licked cupcake lessons that we all had Mm -hmm. in young women's, the, you know, chewed gum, Mm -hmm. the, it's better to lose your life than your virtue. Which is what your mom said to you. Huh? Which was basically what your mom said to you. Right. Yeah. It's better that you're dead. A dead daughter being buried than a than a daughter right. who's alive and who can actually fix their own mistakes and figure things out and grow up and right. be a, an amazing person. Right. Will you describe the cupcake thing just briefly for people who have, who are just listening to this episode and they don't know what that is? Um, so I don't specifically remember the licked cupcake for me. Um, so I will do the chewed gum theory. Um, but basically, you know, holding up a piece of a gum, a stick of gum and saying, you know, what, what is this? It's gum. Um, 
would any of you like it? Yes, we would. Um, and then the person giving the lesson, opening it up and sticking it in their mouth and chewing it, and then trying to offer it to somebody who said they wanted the piece of gum. And of course, we're like, ew, no, we don't want it now. And saying, well, this is what you're offering somebody if you have sex before marriage. And specifically, women. I don't really... I know young men are are manipulated and abused in other ways and tactics, but, you know, basically you are a chewed piece of gum that nobody's going to want if you've had sex before. Yes. Only women are choose, pie- uh, choose pieces of gum, though, not boys. Because women are sluts and boys are studs, right? Right. And also there's no opportunity for redemption either because a lot of the stories, they, you know, they maybe they use a rose and they rip off all the petals of the rose or maybe it's the cupcake and they lick the frosting off the cupcake. But there's, there's never the story of how you can be redeemed from that. Mm-hmm. You, you just are perpetually the licked cupcake. Yep. And that, you know, when you've got a young girl who's already, you know, we struggle with a lot of, uh, a lot of things just by the fact that we're young teenage girls, to put that on a girl with no opportunity for redemption either is mm-hmm. just so damn abusive harmful mm-hmm. yeah well and i didn't realize this until much later like a couple years ago i think part of my internal struggle that consciously no sub in my subconscious i I think I was really struggling with the fact that we were able to forgive my uncle. Um, We still went to family reunions. I saw my mom giving him a hug. When we'd go to those things, I would literally spend my time trying to keep my eye on my uncle so that I knew he was as far away from me as possible while everybody else is having fun. And I loved like my family reunions because I didn't get to see those, that side of the family often. And I loved my cousins and it was just fun. But after that, I was like, nobody is here to protect me. I have to protect myself. And yet I would see him interacting with other cousins And I was, like, jealous because I'm, like, I I wanted that attention, but I didn't want that attention. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but I, I very much struggled with, we were able to forgive my uncle. Nothing was done. He wasn't disowned by the family. And yet, here I am, um... Yes, I was young, but I was allowing whatever to happen to my body. It was my choice, and yet I'm being disowned. Um, And like I said, I didn't realize that was such an issue for me until a couple of years ago. Um, But I, 
I don't understand that. Well, you, know? you were you were doing something that was consensual, right? Right. Yes. You were doing yeah. something that con- was consensual between you and this boy, and you're punished for it. But when something non-consensual happens to you, that person is still still claims their fa- their place in the family. Right. And they're not disowned, and they're not punished on a on a level that is visible. Right. Yeah. Well, also, um, isn't it nice that he was able to say, you know, I'm going to handle this with the church, and he gets to go to the bishop and confess whatever it is, and and he's just wiped clean. <laughs> but you are perpetually a chewed piece of gum. Right. Like, yeah. wouldn't it be awesome to just free your own conscience too? But, but. I mean, that shit pisses me off because I remember um, my Uncle Tom, I, I, this is the only Mormon wedding where I went and sat on the grass, and it was the only time I did it. But when my Uncle Tom got married in the temple, my dad brought us, and, and we all went and sat on the grass with all the sinners to wait for them to come out of the temple. And I remember just being so pissed off because he had, at that point, I I hadn't confronted him yet, um, but he had never come to ask me for any kind of forgiveness. And later on when I did confront him, that was one of the things I asked him about was, how come you got to go on a mission and you got to go to the temple and all that? And he told me that he did confess it to his bishop and he, he worked out his own spiritual stuff. But he did it completely without my participation. Right. And I just think it's such bullshit that they get to have, uh, you know, this meeting with the bishop. That That's their accountability is to go go to the bishop. And everyone's like, well, okay, he did his process. He went to the bishop. And it's such bullshit that, that they get to free their own conscience and... and and some fucking bishop who, he's just one of the goddamn neighbors. They switch every four years. Right. It's right. not like they're some kind of spiritual guru or anything. You know, they're not the Pope. They're, they're just your damn neighbor. Right. And he gets to, he gets to wash the, the person clean and say, you are forgiven. And it's, it's such bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's such bullshit it is but but we're pieces of gum that have been chewed and i'll also mention i was freaking married with children at the same age that you had sex like i was a married person at freaking 15 years old wow it was better for me to be right up be married than be an unwed mother right with with all of my evidence of my sexual sin sitting on my lap with the binky in their mouth. Well, what happens to us as, as survivors of sexual assault when we actually do take ownership over our own bodies, and even though we're not uh, maybe mature enough in some ways to be able to make certain decisions, if, you're, if we're being guided through those decisions that we make by telling us that we're promiscuous, that we're a slut, that we're unworthy that we're a chewed piece of gum and then we go to the bishop and we talk to the bishop about hey so 
this is what happened to me as a kid and this is actually what I've, you know, what I've been through. Um, and then we get disfellowshipped or I got disfellowshipped when I was sexually active as a teenager. So rather than me having any help from the bishop and him justifying some of my behaviors and saying, you know, I can see that this these things that you do are basically protective mechanisms or you're trying to figure out your own sexuality based on the fact that you were touched as a kid and that sparked and turned on certain parts of you. No, they can't see that. Like what you were just saying, Dana, there's no training. There is no training in them. They don't understand. And the the damage that they they do by allowing these perpetrators to never be turned into the police because their repentance is in that office is, it needs to stop. It just needs to stop. It does. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful for Sam Young and his, Mm -hmm. his, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but his... His crusade? <laughs> yes, to to stop those interviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's... that's. I was going to say to you, Dana, I bet a lot of the time, I can't put a percentage on it, but I bet a lot of the time those actual repentance things never even happened. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like you, I thought, how come like, how come I'm not involved in this? Because, you know, let's let's why didn't the bishop reach out to me and be like, hey, come into my office. And, you know, but I, I bet a lot of times they never divulge anything. Well, it's kind of the same I, thing with too, my you don't. You don't have value because you're just a kid. Like, we yeah. got to handle the adult here, the right. perpetrator, because they're an adult and they have a life and we don't want to ruin their life and we want to make sure that they get back on the right track and everything. Right. But the kid is expendable every every time. Mm-hmm. Well, they'll, What were you going to say, Kendra? Oh, thanks. <laughs> they won't. Uh, they won't bring the kids into the office because they're a witness, right? They're a witness. They're the they're the victim, or the family is the witness. So they're not going to bring the kid in there because then that that actually uh, supports the fact that they should be turning this person into the police. But years That's later, true. years later down the line, when the perpetrator is trying to be rebaptized and have his blessings restored, of course they will. Of course they'll come and check with you to see if you're okay with it, even if they don't have, they haven't made any restitution, they've never repented, they've never fix the things that they did or even admitted what they did. So how many people has that happened to? How many victims as adults have been thrown under the bus, even though we've decided that we're going to speak out and say, no, it's not okay for him to be baptized. He was, he never went through the process of repentance. So just my thoughts. I still am stuck on the fact that it's your goddamn neighbor. Who's doing the process of repentance. (laughs) You know what? Because in a couple of years, he's just going to become your neighbor again anyway, mm-hmm. right? Right, and he's not going to forget so, the things that were done. He's not, going to fit, he's not going to forget. You're, yeah. you, let me just say, like, your neighbor has no authority. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care what title he's given. Your neighbor doesn't have any authority, and it's none of his business. And, and it's, 
It's absolutely ridiculous if you think about it. It is. It really is. One of the things that I, one of the reasons that I was, if I can talk, one of the reasons that I was able to walk away finally, it was like a light switch, you know, that everybody has a different light switch that helps them to figure out that they need to leave this abusive organization. Um, But the light switch was basically the same thing you just said. They have no authority. There is no real authority. There's no authority that we don't give them over us. So yeah. if, if I'm writing these letters to the First Presidency, I'm giving them authority over me. As a child, we don't have that. We don't have that right to say, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to be a Mormon anymore. And we have no, no understanding of why we should say that or how harmful it is. So, you know, yeah. how, how are we supposed to know as kids that we're, you know, that we're in a situation that we, that in, as adults, it's going to be a life sentence for us? Right. Sorry, Esther, we got a little off track there. No, you're <laughs> totally fine. Um, so, with all of these lessons that I'm having on, you know, remaining chaste, um, I've now experienced sexual abuse, I've now had sex, I was really struggling. Um, so, I decided, well... Let me, let me rewind just a teeny bit. Once I moved back with my mom, she made me go and confess to the bishop. I think I'd been talking to the bishop of in my home ward a little bit. Um, I can't really remember the timeline of it, um, which is another thing. Like, we shouldn't make other people go in to confess their, like, mm-hmm. hey, I stole this, or hey, because... That's not true. Repentance being like, if they're not sorry, then they're not sorry. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, it is abuse. But, um... It's forced. Forced repentance. Yeah. So, you know, I had the whole... Go into detail on what you and your boyfriend did. Go into detail on, you know... Positions... Um, and you can't help but think, I mean, that makes you very uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. they have to be getting off on knowing that this 15, 16 year old in front of you, you know, was, was doing these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's absolutely, to me, a sin, if you will, is a sin. I don't care if it's you know, shopping on Sunday, or if it's, you know, I don't know, something a little more drastic than that, or if it's stealing something from a store. Like, a sin is a sin, and you need to feel sorry for it and want to go in. But honestly, it really is between you and God. This your neighbor, like you said, really I mean, what's he gonna do? Mm-hmm. Other than shame and guilt and manipulate you into feeling like you're worthless. So um so yeah, I had to divulge details and you know, couldn't take the sacrament for however long, which is humiliating when you know, people are noticing. Um, but I was really struggling. 
Huh? Sorry, let me pause you. Kendra, I can totally hear clicking. Yeah. What's happening? I, I thought one of you guys was doing mouse taps or tapping. You know what? I wonder if it's me and my pen. Oh, it might be. I think I may have been doing that not knowing that I I probably was getting nervous and I didn't even... Has it it's okay. stopped? It's, it's nervous. Yeah, it stopped now. <laughs> okay. It's stopped. You're allowed to be nervous. say anything? Huh? No. Okay. Um, so I was really struggling with forgiveness. We had a lesson on forgiveness. And I took it upon myself to make an appointment with my bishop who at this time was a different bishop than the one I divulged everything to. I was probably 17 at this point. And I told him that I was struggling on forgiving. And he's like, well, can you be more detailed? Um, And a part of me was really hoping that I would go to this bishop and tell him what happened to me as a child and that it would be reported because I was getting, I was starting to get to the really angry stage. And so I told him about the abuse that had happened and he asked me, well, do you know if he's repented and gone to his priesthood authority, you know, leaders? And I said, well, he told me he did. And he said, well, then if he's taken all the steps for repentance, you don't need, you know, he's forgiven. And if you are unable to forgive him, then the sin will be yours in the next life. Hmm. And I remember thinking, well, shit, I'm guess I'm a child molester in the next life because I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive him. Um, Because it affects so much of your daily interactions with people, Mm -hmm. you know? I hear somebody who laughed like my uncle, and I instantly freeze and am right back where I was on Mm -hmm. his lap. I do not like the people that I've been in relationships with to kiss my ears. Like, don't. Um, There's so many little things that it affects. And I went home and was praying. I I mean, I was devastated being like, wait, this is my sin now? Which, when you think about it, it makes no sense because... We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Like, it's all bullshit. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever. But I took it very literally. um, And I remember praying, and I had this overwhelming feeling of, "You, you don't understand this now, but someday this will all make sense. And I'm like, what? Like, this, this, yeah, you're right. This makes no sense. Did somebody but say I that felt, to you or you felt that? I felt that. Okay. Like after, you know, praying and reading scriptures and whatever else. Um, and, and I felt it very strongly. Um, so, you know, Time happens, life happens, I graduate high school, I get married, because honestly, 
I was 19 and I really think I just wanted to leave my mom's dictatorship and thought marriage was how to do that. Um, I wanted to get married in the temple, make my mom finally proud. And, um, but I was, I was way too young and that's not a reason to get married, but, Mm -hmm. um, the long and short of it was, is we were married seven years and, um, Shortly after we had my first son, well, our only child, um, I didn't know this, but he had found my journals when we were dating, Mm. and he would go to the bathroom and read them, Um, and so he knew that I had, you know, had sex previously, Um, but shortly after my oldest son was born, we got into an argument and I remember him looking at me and saying, you know, I only married you because I felt sorry for you. And we did things that we shouldn't have done before marriage. Um, and I felt obligated to marry you and our son deserves a pure mom, not, you know, not someone so disgusting as you. And I had just rolled up my diaper. Well, not my diaper, but my son's diaper. And I just remember looking at him and chucking that thing as hard as I could towards him, which (laughs) is not, you know, but I, it was constantly brought up to me how worthless I was because of, you know, these things. And that had a lot to do with why we didn't stay married. Um, But I felt super guilty for um, dissolving the marriage, you know, breaking my temple covenants, which temple, man, that's a whole whole other story. But um, so I very much wanted to get remarried quickly um, find, you know, a priesthood leader for my home and me and my child. And yeah, I got married, remarried way too quickly. Um, but while I was dating my second husband shortly after, I'd say two, three months after dating, he sat me down and said, I have something that I really need to talk to you about. And I instantly knew, and I looked at him and said, you haven't molested a child, have you? And he said, yes. And I remember being like, okay, whatever, I'm out of here. And as I'm driving home, the thought popped into my mind again that This won't make sense to you now, but someday you'll understand. Hmm. And the mental gymnastics that happens to protect yourself made me go, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm finally going to be able to forgive my uncle because Hmm. I'm going to see somebody who has done this and has fully repented. And that's one thing I loved about this guy is I I liked church, but I didn't love it. And there were lots of times that I was like, I just don't want to go. 
so I felt I really needed somebody who was very dedicated to going and he seemed that way. And I, I don't want to blame the church, but I do. But I somehow came up with this story that this was an answer to my prayers and this was how I'm going to learn how to forgive and that everything would be okay and that it was this beautiful blessing when in all reality it turned into a fucking nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, So he told me, you know, he'd repented, he'd turned himself in, he was being charged. Um, they dropped it down from a sexual assault to a misdemeanor. I investigated all of that because it was important to me, and his his story totally panned out. So I felt like he was being very truthful. Um, we get married um, three or four months, probably maybe even two or three months into the marriage, I became pregnant. Um He had older children from a previous relationship, and something always seemed a little off to me with his, him and his daughter. And I, I tied it down to jealousy. Like, I'm like, I think I'm just jealous because my dad left and she has her dad and he had full custody of her. And I really thought I was just jealous and now I'm pregnant and I'm hormonal um but I could not let go of the fact that something didn't seem right and I would ask him like what is going on and absolutely nothing you know so I I have always doubted myself and that's one thing about the church is you know I I think, especially for people who've been abused, you you really do second-guess yourself Mm -hmm. and um, don't learn to trust your gut. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'd been married, married 18 months, and I woke up one night, and my husband wasn't in bed, and so my baby was nine months old at the time. I checked on the baby and I went looking for my husband and downstairs was his daughter's room. And I reached the bottom of the stairs and start walking to her room. And I heard her say, dad, stop it. Get out of my room. Your wife is upstairs. Go be with her. And you know, it's, I, I remember freezing, but I also remember that the feeling of protecting his child outweighed me wanting to freeze. And so I just yelled his name and said, get upstairs now. And he came upstairs very nonchalantly. And I said, you need to tell me what is going on. And deny, 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 nothing. We were just talking. She was tired and wanted me to go to bed. And he even was like, ask her tomorrow. There's nothing going on. So the next day she came home from school and I asked her, 
I need you to tell me what is going on. And she just started bawling and said, I just want it to stop. And I said, what do you want to stop? And she's like, I just want him to leave me alone. And I said, I need to know exactly what you need him to stop doing. And like I said, he had full custody of her. Her mom really wasn't in the picture. And she told me that he'd been molesting her for several years and thought it would stop once he got married. Um, her first orgasm was with him. Um, she was terrified that she was going to lose her virginity to him. And I have to rewind really quick because shortly after we were married, I got a phone call and it was from a cousin of mine. And she's like, hey, this is me. I need to know if what I hear is true. Did, did my uncle, which is her grandpa, but did my grandpa molest you too? Mm. And this whole time I had felt guilty for nothing happening because if something happened... Um, I felt like I was responsible because nothing was done. Um, so I, I honestly think that's partly why I went to talk to my bishop is because I wanted him to report it because I did feel like I was responsible if something else happened after my abuse. And I was just like, um, yeah. And she's like, I'm reporting him. I'm reporting him. I lived with him for three years with my mom, and it happened for three years. And I immediately was like, I am responsible for this happening. So my then-husband, my new husband, went to court with me. He backed me up. He said how awful he was. He was such a supporter. Um, and in the meantime, you know, he's he's the exact same same thing. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I compare people like this to Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very likable. Everybody loved him. He was the highlight of the party, center of attention told great stories and really it's just you know their way mm -hmm. um so they overcompensate mm-hmm I point something out here because maybe this is obvious to some people but I I, I just think it's so important that so many times the these guys know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They are seeking out their targets. And the only way that they can get what they want is to be the one that everybody trusts and everybody likes. It's part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you come forward, they have also built up 
this persona so that they have plausible deniability. If they are the fun guy, the nice guy, the funny guy, the, the one who's always helping, the one who shows up to help people move, the, the guy in the neighborhood that everybody wants to be around, then that that's how they gain access. But at the same time, when we come forward, that's also how people deny it and they can't believe it and they just can't mm-hmm. imagine that it would be this person because they're so great. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's it's all part of it. So like as a society, when somebody comes forward with the story and says this person has abused me, if our first thought is to say, oh, it can't be him because he's so great, that that needs to start being a warning sign yeah. for people. Because mm-hmm. we don't let creeps hang around with our children. Right. We, if right. there's like the creepy guy in the family, we're not leaving our kids at their house to be babysat. Right. So they, they can't be creepy. They can't be weird. They have, they have to be like a lot of times they're the knight in shining armor. They're the guy who's looking for, um, a situation where he can come in and save the day. Mm -hmm. And I know that happens a lot is this idea that they're going to save the day. They're going to marry the woman who's down on her luck with a bunch of kids because he's going to come in and be the white knight that, that takes care of everybody. But he's, he also gets people who are already traumatized, already vulnerable and he, the, these are the targets that he chooses from. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Like, just, I don't want to cut into your story because I, I really want to hear it. But, like, I always wondered how my mom with six kids managed to be married five times. Like, who who married? It's who marries somebody with six kids in reality, you know? Yeah. Like, why is why is that so hard to believe that that these guys are bad? That it, it's because they give off this air of look at how cool I am. I I take on six children because mm-hmm. I'm just so amazing. I'm coming in to save the day. But mm-hmm. really, my mom married the same guy five times. That's what happened. <laughs> I. There's one part I'm looking at my notes and I forgot this part. Um, around graduation time, um, I was driving with my my biological dad to I think my other sister's home in Logan, and I just decided, you know what, I'm gonna tell him. It wasn't his side of the family; it was my my mom's side of the family that um, the abuse happened from. Um, I guess I really wanted to know if he would protect me. Um, So I said, there's something I have to tell you. I, I need you to know what happened to me. So I told him about my abuse as a child. And he said, well, first things first, what were you wearing? Oh, shit. Oh, and I, you know, you, you crumble into a thousand pieces and I mean, 
I didn't even hit puberty until I was 14. Mm-hmm. So at 11 years old, not that it matters at all, but it absolutely is just a control and power play for, you know, these people. It was the Care Bears pajamas right. you were wearing, yeah. right? Or, or the strawberry remember. shortcake shirt that was like a halter top or something, right? Right. right? <laughs> I just remember looking at him and being like, Dad, I don't care if I was running around naked. Mm-hmm. I was 11. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and, you know, that validated my dad's a creep. Um, He probably struggles with issues of his own. Maybe he has victims out there. Mm. Um, He had said other off-the-wall comments during my marriages about he walked into a bedroom of mine because I needed help moving something that was heavy and I was pregnant, and he noticed my closet doors were full-length mirrors. And he's like, oh, those are nice. And I'm like, yeah. Well, the bed was right across from the closet mirrors and he's like you should get a mirror on that wall and on the ceiling and he like looked in it and then like looked up and I just realized he you know was envisioning me having sex on that bed and thought it would be a great thing um so yeah that that was another thing that I'm like you know I'm on my own. Like, I really, truly am. So back to my cousin calling me and asking if her grandpa, which was my uncle, had molested me. Um, Court proceedings started. And a lot of it, you know, I was interviewed. Um, I, I believe I could be wrong. I think it was 16 of us. Um, came forward and were wow. interviewed, but not all of us would would show up to the court stuff because some just couldn't handle it, which I fully understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt strongly that my cousin needed support, and I had found out this abuse had been happening for years before me. Um, you have to understand my his wife was 20 years older than my mom, their sisters. So by the time, I mean, this guy was like 75 when he abused me. So, um, I know there were inappropriate things with my cousin's mom and he just could get away with it because, you know, priesthood authority and I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. And when you're, if you are going to your bishop, it's a new bishop every four to five years. So it just infuriates me that abuse of any kind doesn't have to be reported. Um, so I remember the day that he got sentenced and he walked in in an orange jumpsuit and he was shackled at the feet and with his hands behind his back. His back. And I had thought seeing him like that would cause me great joy. Mm-hmm. And I just 
started falling. Um, it wasn't at all the way I thought it would be. It was very traumatic as I looked around the room and saw that other people were affected far greater than me. Um, and I couldn't help but just feel sorry that he had made those choices. So here I am again feeling sorry for the person who, you know, has changed my life and not in a good way. Um, so he was sentenced and he ended up dying in prison. So in the meantime, my aunt's health got worse and worse and worse. She was deteriorating and she finally ended up divorcing him about a year before he passed away mm. at like, I don't know, 83 years old. And mm. I honestly think she lived with that and she knew a lot of what was going on and that it ate away at, at her. But I sympathize with her because of my second marriage and and how I felt um, with knowing what had happened with my husband and my stepdaughter. So back to that, like I said, the abuse with her and my ex-husband had been going on for several years. And I remember looking at her and saying, what do you want me to do? I will divorce him. You can come live with me. And she just said, I've lost my mom and I don't want to lose my dad too. Like mm -hmm. I need my dad. And as somebody who grew up without a dad, I really felt for her. Um, and I made the decision that I would stay married to him and until she turned 18. Like, I needed to know that she would be safe. I didn't report him, and we just went along with going to church and pretending like everything, you know, was was great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being, being, serving in Relief Society and, and in Elders Quorum. Um, so that was really hard and I became very suicidal because I felt like I was living a life that wasn't true at all. Um, you were like a guard. You were a, what a burden to, to carry. Well, this is why I started the, you know, my podcast with children who are taught to sweep things under the rug, become adults that live here. I, anybody in their right mind would know, you call the fucking cops. Like, you call the authorities. Even if he wants to repent, you, you call and report this. Like, 
I don't want to say that the thought never crossed my mind, but I legitimately really didn't even think of doing that. And I think it's because my core belief was that I didn't matter, you know? And I unfortunately wanted her to know that she mattered, but I still didn't handle it appropriately. I, I told her, I'll make sure you're safe, but I'm not with her all the time, you know? There's no way that I, I, I could know that she was safe. Um, so, obviously, our marriage was on the rocks and it had ups and downs. And we ended up leaving the church together and drinking and doing all sorts of, hey, we never lived like a teenager, so let's live like we're teenagers and stupid, stupid stuff. But um, I remember one time drinking with my ex and I took a drink and all of a sudden I started feeling really, really tired Mm. and the next thing I know, you know, it was probably like, I don't know, evening hours when we started drinking, I'm going to say four or five, maybe even six, but I wake up and it's pitch dark and I'm like, I don't remember a dang thing. Mm. And I was confused. (laughs) Like, um, and I just remember like, what the heck? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I think I was drugged. And we were at my home, so no one else was there. And I had the feeling, you need to go look at his phone. Because I knew this person was a very deviant person. So I went and looked at his phone. And there were pictures of me looking lifeless with him doing things to me and a couple of videos and I took his phone I started emailing these pictures to myself um you know and then trying to erase that it was sent and trying to cover my tracks and he of course woke up and found me and um, I was very terrified of him. Like, I kind of think I know how Emma must have felt being married to Joseph. Like, who's going to believe me? Um, his daughter was still young. It's not like I can recruit her and put her in the middle of this. And again, didn't report it. Like, what the hell? You know, we ended up, you know, divorcing and his daughter is now an adult and she and I talk, but I'm really upset with myself in the way that I didn't or I did handle it. Um, The two of you were surviving. Mm-hmm. You were both victims who were surviving. Mm -hmm. 
and you need to, I don't know if you know that, you need to see that the two of you were surviving. You were using the skills that were available to you at the time, the protective mechanisms that, that made sense to you at the time, and I, you know, I commend you. Like you, you essentially gave your life to to guard over this this girl, and the two of you experienced this trauma that has an effect on on the chemicals in your brain, and you at the time were surviving in the best way that you knew how to do. You were guarding each other or you know, you didn't even put that that burden on her. It's like you were carrying you were you were carrying it for both of you. Mm-hmm. And but I didn't handle it in the best way, like truly. Like that I I do think for like two or three years I was in like a mental breakdown mode. I was very suicidal. Um, when when we would disagree, I I would bring up how awful he was and that I thought you know he he was you know this actor, and it would arise in arguments and it. It did place her in in a position of of almost resenting me, mm. like um, it it was it was very difficult. Luckily, she and I we're not close now, but I still do talk with her, and we've you know discussed a, a little bit of this stuff, but. I, I, I wish I would have handled it better than I did. And I'm going to emphasize that when you find out about any sort of abuse, especially when it's a child, you need to go to the authorities. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. if, if the authorities drop the ball, that's on them. But I would have felt much better about handling it um that way but I I truly I don't want to say I wasn't responsible or or am not responsible but I I I didn't even know like how to do that I was never shown that you know the church was more important than than the law you know yeah I had a similar Um, experience with that that uh, I didn't really think to report my stepdad until 2017 when my mom went to her stake president her stake president was an attorney she told him what had happened to me and what was happening with what the church was trying to get me to write a letter and when she was telling him this he said to her he said you broke the law to my mom she said you broke the law Yes, the church broke the law as well, but you broke the law also. You were in a position of, of trust as well that you were 
you could have reported this. So he said right. to her, you need to report it. So my mom told me that, and I reported my own abuse. I reported right. my and, own abuse. I'll be honest, that terrifies me. Like, I'm yeah. like, if, if it comes out now, which I still am questioning if I should report his abuse to me, you know, me being roofied and drugged. Well, you uh, you should report his abuse of his daughter. Um, and you should report his abuse of you. I'm terrified, you know, I'm going to, you know, be sent to prison, too. Mm, no, I don't, I know, don't think so. I know it's like, yeah. logistically and realistically, but... I, I'm terrified, yeah. you know? You were, yeah. you were a woman who was being also, was also being abused. Right. So the fact that you didn't yeah. report his abuse of his daughter was not, it was not something that you were in a position of trust where you are actually a person who's a healthcare provider or someone who is trained in these kind of things, yeah. is trained to understand, okay, well, this is, this is abuse. Um, right. Even though you probably knew that on some level, you were also considering many other things that were happening in your mind and yeah. to, to survive. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think survival mode mm-hmm. is just, you know. Yeah. Um, so you can't, you can't discount surviving. I mean, women are vulnerable anyway right and you both you both were surviving and you are in a place now of more uh you know stability and i i sort of agree i mean you have to make the decisions that are best for your own family but I sort of agree that if if it's possible to report it, that I think that that on some levels can give you some peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially not- if he's still alive, and you know, the likelihood of him continuing in this kind of behavior and putting other women in this kind of danger is you know i don't i don't know that they ever outgrow it you know and i but i firmly believe that they don't now mm-hmm. i mean my my thought of ooh i get to see this person who's changed and like everything's going to be okay and i'll you know see the gospel in action working it's all bullshit mm-hmm. um side yeah. note the child that he had molested when he told me when we were dating was his daughter's older half-sister. So, um, it's, I, I firmly, and for me, I think if I did something on that level or not even on that level, there's no way I could have been by my spouse's side going to court proceedings knowing that I was doing the exact same thing. Like, I I couldn't do that. And to me, that's a bit, you know, there's some narcissistic tendencies there because mm-hmm. 
no filling whatsoever. Mm. Um, you know that the laws in Utah as of 2018 are um, rape. Rape no longer has uh, statute of limitations. This happened before 2018. Doesn't matter. Really? Yeah. Well, that's... Rape has no statute of limitations in Utah anymore. I don't know if that applies to retroactive, though. There that's may be what I... I actually think it does in the case of rape. I mean, someone would have to check the laws, but that that is... I know that listeners are going to all, you know, there's going to be people who know this better than we do, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to claim anything absolutely, but I know that before Tom died, we were specifically looking for rape, for we knew that he had raped somebody, and we were trying to find that individual because there was no statute of limitations. As our cases were being closed, we, I in particular, was, we had heard of a rape, and I was trying to locate the individual because that would be a case that couldn't be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us would have been able to testify, even if we couldn't have had our own day in court with him. Right. We we would have been satisfied to be able to testify on the behalf of somebody else. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. That's mm-hmm. ultimately would, what happened with my uncle. Is there like, I mean, you can't really, you know, push press charges, but you can validate your cousin in this is recurring behavior. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. It was interesting because, um, you know, there's lots of particulars of the law here. So all the listeners, please don't correct us on the law. We know that we know that we don't know. (laughs) But um, like my case, for example, the other victims that came forward with me could not um, testify in my case because my case was the newest or the oldest. So they weren't around their cases hadn't happened before my case, so they couldn't testify to the fact that he had had done it before me. But I was able to test, I would have been able to testify in theirs because I could show that it was a pattern of behavior, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. There's lots of particulars there, and ultimately it's the district attorney who determines based on a lot of different factors whether or not they take something to court. So you can't just automatically think that because you can prosecute something that they will prosecute something. But there's a lot of legal stuff that, you know, you have to go through. Um, But I, I, I feel fairly confident saying that that there is no longer a statute of limitation on rape. Okay. So to add to that also, um, uh, Esther, you were worried about your about you getting in trouble, about you having right. consequences. So yeah. if my mom was a was the mandatory mandatory reporter in that case, and mm-hmm. she didn't have any consequences, 
Like, she didn't get in trouble. You know, the police don't even contact her. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think... I almost, I almost feel like it's a game of almost bishop roulette, though. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. police uh-huh. roulette, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I should not let fear guide me, but I, I'm terrified. And I think part of my healing is knowing that this is what I need to do. Yeah. Let, you know. let me interject something here too, because this is another thing that I found out. You are able to go to the victim's advocate in the city where the, the crime was committed. You can speak to a victim's advocate and you can speak to them anonymously. Okay. And so you can, um, everyone has the right to do this. If you are a victim in the state of Utah, you can speak to the victim's advocate uh, confidentially and anonymously prior to reporting. And okay. they are, they, their, their exact, uh, their reason for being there is they can help you walk through the process. They can tell you what to expect. They can, they can talk to you about the whole process without you even giving their name information your name. yeah yeah okay and so that is something that i would highly recommend it does not obligate you to report uh, anything to report it doesn't obligate anything it's what what it's part of what the victims advocates are there for and so I, I would strongly recommend that you do that, and you can go ahead and keep, you know, keep your name off of the record while you discuss with them. And I really think that will ease your mind, and, you, and you'll get a lot more information that, that way. And you well, have the right to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because I know a lot of people who, you know, they, they get in this cycle of getting in situations with, you know, they have recurring sexual abuse happen to them, you know? Um, yes. It's, it's unfortunately very common. Yes. The next piece of my story is I got divorced. Um, I, you know, I worked as a cashier at a store making very little um and someone within the ex-mormon community who's very well known at least he was and remember this is like seven years ago um very well liked educated does charitable stuff Um, reached out to me saying he was looking for a secretary and wanted to know if I wanted to apply. And of course I did, because I'd be making more than I did at my job. And to make a long story short, went in, interviewed, I was hired. I know for a fact I was not the most qualified. Let's just say that, because I was interviewed with him and the office manager and when he's like, you know what, I'm going to take a gamble on you. You're hired. She like put her notebook on the desk and looked at him like, are you kidding me? So I, 
I told him, I'm like, look, I don't want you to hire me because you feel sorry for me. And he's like, no, I, I really think you'll be a good fit for the company. Um, shortly after that, um, he was celebrating his 10 year being in business, having it be successful. He was, you know, the CEO and he was taking all of his employees to Cancun. And he's like, you know, you just got hired. You're probably not going to go. I'm like, that's fine. And a couple weeks after working there, he's like, we'd really like you to go. Unfortunately, you won't be able to bring a guest like everybody else. And I was like, that's fine. I was just excited to, to go. Um, he would always, you know, are you doing okay? How's being a single mom? Do you need anything? And I mean anything, if you need money. And I, I felt so fortunate that I had such a great boss, but again, I knew something was off. Um, but we had gone to dinner um, because he thought I would be great for the marketing position that was open. So we were going to go to dinner and talk about marketing. And the next thing I know, before, before I even realized it, he's asking very personal questions. I'm opening up to him about my sexual abuse as a child He's saying he was sexually abused. We're, we're very on this personal, you know, level. And then when it came time to order dessert, he said, I, I wanted creme brulee and he wanted something else. I don't know. And he's like, well, my dessert's better than your dessert. How about we order both? And if you like mine more than yours, you owe me a kiss. And, I, you know, this guy's married. I know his wife. Um, I, oh, and he told me he would give me a raise as well. <laughs> so, yeah, the dessert came. I liked my dessert more than his truly, and I told him I'm not going to kiss him or... Um, I don't need a raise. And I thought about it over the weekend and I'm like, you know what? The, the cycle is happening again. Um, so the next week I said, I need to have a talk with you. Um, and I told him, look, I think this is super inappropriate. I really am here to, you know, be career oriented and grow and he's like I'm sorry um you're right thank you you know it's very very it shows your character and I felt really good about it and like less than a week later he walked by me in the coffee or the copy room and like touched my ass so um Hmm. Me being a single mom, terrified that um, I couldn't be too vocal or I'd lose this new job. Um, 
Oh, he ended up sending me a text asking me to send him a nude picture of myself and said, you have until like 10.59 today and remember who your boss is. Ah. And so I was like, oh my gosh. Um, We ended up going to Cancun and things were great. I guess I was, I, I felt safe. I was with a lot of my, you know, coworkers and we were in the actual pool. Now, mind you, this guy knows my abuse story cause I told him and I'm sure, you know, or if you've traveled, there's little at a, at a, at a pool with a bar, you can swim up and order a drink and they have little tables in the pool and all of my coworkers were in this area of the pool and I swam to one of the tables and was kind of like putting my arms on the table floating and he very nonchalantly kind of was under the water waving his arms slowly came over beside me I was looking at his wife having a conversation and I felt his hand in between my thighs and up and under my swimsuit and he digitally raped me Mm. in front of his wife. Jeez. And knowing that he knew that I froze with my uncle Again, I, I should have stood up and been like, what in the fuck are you doing, mm-hmm. you sick fuck? Yep. And I just froze. And I, you know, I, yeah, I kind of came to, shook my head, and I'm like, I'm going over to the bar. Like, I, you know, so I, I did leave, but it was traumatic in that it was like the same thing that happened with my uncle and, and he knew Mm -hmm. and there were people around. Um, so, um, and you're a captive audience at that point. Like you can't leave. You're stuck in Cancun. What are you going to do? So I, 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 became a recluse. I didn't go to any of the activities where he was at. Cause usually there were, t- there was like 40 of us there. So there were typically two or three groups going to do different things. And I just, you know, wouldn't be part of that group with him. Um, but I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I'd be believed, you know, believed. I was like, okay. Um, So about a week after returning, I, he asked me, Hey, come back into my office and water my plants. And I knew that I had to say something to him. And I began recording all conversations at that point. But, um, I, you know, I called him out on it. Um, he, he, he again, kind of like my, 
ex-husband was very understanding oh yeah you know you should take this to HR which was our office manager like there really was no HR um when I told her she's like oh my gosh well you're not the first and you won't be the last like he's very inappropriate so it was about nine months of struggling and I would have people approach me on the street being like, hey, I, I hear you're looking for a new job, and which I was, but like I wanted it to be on my terms. Um, and I didn't know who these people were. So it was almost like he had people following me, knew who I was. It was like terrifying. And one of the meetings I like recorded And the office manager was very supportive of me when it was just me and her. Mm. But one of the last recordings I had was um, me being like, look, you're, you're being very threatening. Like, I can tell you're trying to scare me from leaving, which I understand. But I may, like, have wobbly knees and a shaky voice, but you are not... Like, I'm not backing down. Like, the I will go down with in a fight. Like, um, and the office manager looked at me and she's like, you know, you never reported this um, in a written statement. You never, and I looked at her and I'm like, are you kidding me? You're the HR person. I am waiting for you to tell me what to do. I've never been in this situation. Don't you pin this on me mm-hmm. and say, like, you've known about this. Like, I need your guidance. And she's like, well, it says in the employee handbook. And I'm like, I never received an employee handbook ever. So next thing you know, within the next week, employee handbooks are being distributed By the time I found another job and left, I turned in a paper. Um, It was like 23 pages long. And I was told his attorney will give you a severance if you sign this paper and promise to never bring this up again. And I said, absolutely not. So... Um, now I'm going to jump forward again a little bit. A couple of years later, I found out that my own daughter had been sexually abused by her dad's son, her half-brother, for two or three years. And I remember... Telling her, first of all, I want you to know that I believe you. I want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. And I want you to know that you're going to be safe now that I know what's going on. She went and talked to DCFS. Mind you, she's like five or six. And this had been happening for a couple of years. And it was in that moment that I decided she matters 
and I need her to know that she matters and I need her to see how to appropriately handle these types of situations so that she has an example because we all know the likelihood of this happening to her or to someone else that she knows is very likely. Um, and I need to, I need to do this for her. And as she's going through her stuff, I realized she matters and I do too. Like I do. Definitely. So I went back to the cops to report my prior former boss terrified but I'm like if she's brave enough to do it I am too and basically I was told that because it happened in Cancun there's absolutely no jurisdiction in any court in America and I should have reported the abuse while in Mexico and even with my recordings even with text messages um there's not anything they can do so a word of advice to the listeners it's you know and it's hard because when it happens to you you know you you're scared you're terrified but as we become stronger and know what we do need to do, um, you know, I, I feel like these things keep recurring. <laughs> Number one, because mm. I'm, I'm too trustworthy and that's on me. Number two, I'm not listening to my gut because in every one of these situations, I tried to choose what I thought was best for my eternal progression instead of the now. Um, and I, I, I really do feel like it's time for me to start growing and learning from, from this, you know? Yeah. Sounds like you already so, have. <laughs> huh? Let me just it say sounds... that... Go ahead. First of all, for everyone who's listening because I know for a fact that the people who are listening this this kind of stuff happens to them too mm -hmm. and so I really want them to see how the freeze the the freeze response is so common it I I actually think it's the most common and just like you are sort of beating yourself up all of these years uh, about it, we need to start understanding that it's a response, that it's a protective response, and it's not that you did anything wrong. And the world, the church, society, um, even like our own selves trying to, we know that we're, you know, badass women and we, we know that we're strong. And so we, we put this on ourselves that we, we've done something wrong or we didn't fight or we, we should have said something. But the reality is when you are 
physically going through an assault, this is a common response. You are surviving. It's more important that, that you survive, and I want everyone to hear that. We need to get rid of this shit in the church and elsewhere that says you should fight. You know, you, you, you should fight and be willing to die. Bullshit. You should survive. And what you did was you followed your instinct, and your instinct said that your instinct froze you to, to help you with your survival. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay. You are not bad. You, it's not, it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It means that, that you acted like everybody else does because this is, this is the response. This protects us. This keeps us alive. And it's important that you are alive. Mm-hmm. It's, that's important. Yeah. I'm glad you're fucking alive. So don't beat yourself up over that. And then secondly, I want to point out that when, uh, it, it's very, very common when you have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted, for it to recur. The statistics are so high that once you have been abused, you it makes you vulnerable to be re-abused and re-abused. Your boss picked you out because you were vulnerable. It was that whole white knight thing that I mm-hmm. talked yep. about earlier. Yep. You were an easy victim, and he probably knew exactly that to take you to Cancun, you would be in the jurisdiction of another country, and yep. he would be off scot-free. So one thing I want to point out and is... And I was the only one without a, a partner that could bring somebody with them. Mm-hmm. Like, he had it all planned out. I know he did. Absolutely. Absolutely. But when, you know, when we are children and we come forward and we're not believed, and then we are mm-hmm. abused again and we're not believed, and we're abused again and we're not believed, we become more and more and more vulnerable. And predators know how to sniff that out. They know mm-hmm. how to see it. That's what they're looking for. They're trained. This is their thing. And so if you imagine that you don't believe a child when they say that they've been abused, how much more are you not going to believe them when they say they've been abused again? Mm -hmm. And then they say they've been abused a third time. And then they say they've been abused a fourth time. So this child who's just sort of overreacting and just wanting attention, now they got two stories, now they got three stories, now they got four stories, and everyone's thinking, you know, yeah, right, you were assaulted four times. Mm-hmm. It happens this way on purpose because you, because you become less credible, it, quote, quote, mm-hmm. you become less credible to society the more stories that you have because it seems to an outside person that that would be unlikely. But the reverse is true. It's highly likely, and they are looking for victims like you because you can be discredited by that. Mm-hmm. So you haven't, and, and then we beat ourselves up for it too. On top of that, we criticize ourselves we think it's our fault. We think that we just were promiscuous or we had loose morals or we call, we should have known better or why didn't I fight? The reason you didn't fight is because you needed to fucking survive. 
And you know what? Just like be fucking glad you survived. And I am. I am. I promise I am. (laughs) I, with, with each, you know, you become more and more vulnerable each time. Yeah. For some reason, I put my trust in others, but I trust myself less and less. Mm -hmm. And each, each time I, um, I, I had that gut instinct that something wasn't right. I did. Maybe not as, well, that's not even true. I was going to say maybe not as a child when I was abused, but that's not true because even, you know, him sucking on my ears, like, I'm like, this is weird, but you know, and, and I feel like that is something that we're not taught in the church is Mm -hmm. to listen to your gut. No, because everything is attributed to the church. The church is the problem and the solution. And, and it's a solution so to your problems, I, all of them. You know, who cares? Who cares if your gut is telling you something's wrong? You know, they did they did a study, which you probably have heard, of women and men getting on an elevator with somebody who looked sketchy already in the elevator. And the women would, like, the elevator doors would open, they'd see them. And they were more worried about how they would make the sketchy guy feel if they didn't step on than they were about their gut feeling and that Mm -hmm. something isn't right. So, like, nine out of ten women got on the elevator, even though they were like, I do not feel like I should be getting on the elevator. The men would take a step back and be like, oh, I meant to go down and not up. Or, you know, or I forgot something and walk back out. We become more and more vulnerable. And that is why the cycle ends up repeating itself. Mm -hmm. And I am here because I am ready to stop the cycle. I am ready to help other other victims out there. Um, Yes, there's advocates but it is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying um, to go through the process. I think there needs to be more resources in the community on, you know, this is this is how we handle this. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like we need somebody. At least I do to hold my hand and mm-hmm. tell me it'll be okay. And if 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 nothing happens, nothing happens like with my boss, but at least I know it's been reported. At least I know that if somebody goes, you know, again to report something, I will have done my job, you know, in in creating a history for this guy. You know, there's such a need for victims, advocates, because I'll just be honest, too. I, I do advocate for going through the legal process if you're able. But I also recognize my privilege. I'm a white middle-class woman who's not afraid of the police. And I, I have a privilege in that, that minorities and LGBTQ folks are much more vulnerable going to the police. So we have to recognize that, first of all. But also, I was assigned a victim's advocate who totally dropped the ball on me. She didn't 
follow up. She didn't. She her workload was so heavy because this is such a fucking problem in Utah mm-hmm. that she just literally could not get back to me and absolutely never did. Despite I, I talked to her one time and she she never followed up. They're just too busy and mm-hmm. so it it is a huge problem and until like you kind of have to work through a process to where you have the ability to advocate for yourself to keep pushing and keep being that squeaky will. That's what I was going to say. You have to be the squeaky will. You have Mm -hmm. to keep calling saying, you know, what's the update on this? Um, Because that's what gets you noticed. You have to literally fight for yourself. And that's what I'm ready to do for me. And I, I think it's funny that I was willing to do this for my child, but not for myself mm-hmm. until I'm like, I need to set an example on how to handle this appropriately and how dare I how dare I be a hypocrite and not do this for myself. Mm-hmm. And this kind of is off off topic, but it's not like, I am one of those parents that let my kids swear if it's Mm -hmm. appropriate. And even if they're mad and they call their brother or sister an asshole, like, I think that's fine. As long as it's, you know, used, used correctly. I let my kids say, fuck. Mm -hmm. They stub their toe and say, oh, fuck. I'm like, yeah, that hurts like a motherfucker. (laughs) Like, um, but I am very much wanting my daughter to be comfortable using that terminology because she needs to be comfortable in everyday conversations to throw it out there when she wants to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that if and when she is approached or is with somebody who's approached she has the confidence to use that yeah yeah There is no way I would have ever, and I didn't, even with my boss, I don't feel confident using my voice and speaking up. And I was never allowed to use my voice and speak up to authority growing up. Mm -hmm. And I want her to be confident in that language. I think it's important. I was thinking about something that you were saying um, with the... you know, being confident in general. Um, another thing that I think is is interesting is that the three of us sitting here talking about this, I'm noticing that both of you are very strong women. You know, you're you have overcome a lot, and I feel like I've overcome a lot and had to become a strong woman. But we become fierce advocates. We become like tigers. Um, that are being poked inside of a cage and we're not willing to just keep watching these these atrocities, these um, people get away with, with molesting children, um, people who are just, in general, not good people, doing shady things. Um, I, I have a problem with both authority and authority who abuses their authority. So yeah. I question authority all the time, but it's not always people in positions of authority that are the ones that are abusing you know they're just the ones that know how to use that authority or how to use that their abuse uh, or the the way that they abuse um they know how to use it to make it so that they get away with what they're doing 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> you know what? I'm going to be honest, too, that um, I'm, I might seem super fierce when we're, we're doing these uh, podcasts, but, like, I, I'm in the real world, I'm struggling, you know? Mm-hmm. I am having a lot of self-doubt, a lot of, um, I talk really badly to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to read this and I might have Kendra take it off. We might have to edit it. I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to read to you this. Can you see my phone? Mm-hmm. I can see your phone, but not the words. <laughs> okay, so do you see how there's this big note right here on top of my phone when I on my home screen though? Right. I'm gonna read it to you. Okay. This is this is on my home screen when I open my phone. I'm gonna try not to cry and we might have to edit it out. But it says Don't edit it out. Okay. <laughs> it says remember that you are the stupidest person in the world and don't talk or text anything at all because you are dumb and look like a crazy person, and everyone hates you. Whoever doesn't hate you just doesn't know you well enough yet. Your family is embarrassed of you. You're like a car crash that folks slow down to look at and grimace. Anything they might say to you is only because your brains are splattered all over the road. Literally, you splatter your brains all over everything. In that case, sure, they'd rather you weren't such a fucking train wreck. And you're selfishly crying over yourself as if you have actual value that is worthy of crying over. You think you are really nice, but really, let's see. You think you're nice, but really, you're that person that makes everyone uncomfortable with your compliments because you sound like the most desperate, stupid bitch in the entire world. So don't even say anything nice. You just sound sickly sweet, fake, and it makes people even more uncomfortable with you. No one talks like you, so stop it. You're fucking dumb as shit. Well, that's not what I thought. <laughs> that's not what I thought you were going to read either. Yeah. Um, number one. Don't edit that out unless you guys really feel you need to. Number two, why the fuck is that your screensaver? To remind me to shut the fuck up. No. Can you can you change you your screensaver to, to change I am that. worthy? I am enough. I am worthy. I was, I was going to share something and then, you know, I knew my story would be long. As a child, I started repeating to myself... I'm stupid, I'm fat, mm-hmm. I'm ugly, I can't do anything right, so mm-hmm. why should I do anything at all? Yep. Yep. And I believe that. And I know that's a core belief. You need to change your screensaver. Mm-hmm. Because you believe that. And you need to, fuck, I don't know, go through it. And everything that's degrading, change it to something positive. And you need to read that every damn day. And you're going to feel like you're lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. But you need to do that. Because guess what? You're lying to yourself now. 
and you believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's time to feel like you're lying to yourself, but actually be telling the truth. Yeah. And I love you, <laughs> and I probably feel like I'm, you probably feel like I'm yelling, but that's absolutely not true in any way. And I'm asking you kindly to please change it. Yeah. I think we, I think we all have done and said things like that to ourselves. Um, mine was, mine was nobody's going to believe a stupid little girl. Because that's what was said to me. Nobody's going to believe a stupid little girl. I'm just thinking, you know, when we see others, you know, we only see what we what people are letting us see. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what's really under there. Yeah. And, like, I'm doing this big thing, but it, it's, you know, it, it costs, it has a cost. And you can't, you can't really assume that every, you know, someone has it all together because, you know, a lot of us don't. And these are the kinds of things we say to ourselves. And if, if this is what you're saying to yourself every day, you know, when your boss swims up to you in Cancun and your reaction is to freeze, that's perfectly reasonable. Because mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of times we don't believe that we have the, we just don't even have it any, we don't consider ourselves at all, you know? Well, it's completely normal to the traumatized mind right like we're all we've all been traumatized so we have core beliefs that are not healthy yeah um normal you know i don't know what normal really is but you know we have core beliefs that are not healthy and those core beliefs you know they lead to physical symptoms too right so if we're not mm -hmm, if we're not taking care of ourselves and reminding ourselves what you know we've been through all these things but yet here we are and we're doing good things and we're speaking out and we're helping other people to speak out and we're helping other people who can't speak out to listen and to feel like they're not alone so Dana you are doing more good than you could ever do harm I I get that it comes at a cost like this is really This is a great work to be doing, Mm -hmm. but as a survivor myself, I know that it is emotionally tolling and mentally tolling. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly how tolling it is, but I, I get that it's probably exhausting and you're doing it for the benefit of others. Mm-hmm. So others know they're not alone. Yeah. So that when they feel they can use their voice, they're able to. Mm-hmm. And like with my daughter, I just hope that your fight for yourself 
becomes as strong as your fight to help other people. Yeah. And if you, I'm not saying do this, but, you know, if there comes a time that you're like, you know, maybe it was just time for me to, you know, get a podcast started and it's time for me to part my ways because this is too tolling. People, you know, people will understand and fuck them. Like, Mm -hmm. you have to take care of you. Yeah. But... The funny thing is, I've never felt more right about anything, you know, like, this, this is the, this is the thing that I feel very strongly that I should be doing. I've never felt more right about it, but I've never done anything this hard either, you know, I, I'm determined regardless of how I feel myself, you know, I'm, I'm determined, but it's, it's dang hard. And I, I just, I, I just want other people to know just like, there are people out there who get, who get it. We get how you feel. And I also want other people who don't know how it feels to just get a glimpse inside of us to see what, what it costs us and to see mm-hmm. how damaging it is. And like when we're so cavalier, when we hear about abuse or if we ask, you know, well, how bad really was it? That was one thing that they kept saying about mm-hmm. Tom was, but what did he really do? How bad was it? Like, was there a penis in a vagina? You know, like people want, people think that, you know, you you have to be thrown on the ground with a knife to your throat before anything is bad. And how how dare like if you're listening listening to this podcast and you hear me how dare you ask how bad it really was how fucking dare you and anyone listening stop asking that shit because what what is a level of bad for me Maybe a different level of bad for Esther and for Kendra, and but if I say it's bad, then it's bad, and you hear me. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, and same with Esther. You know, she at the beginning of the podcast episode, she's saying that her story doesn't seem like it's all that big of a deal, but it is because look at how it's that's affected huge. your entire life. Look at how it's affected your relationships with your with spouses, with your kids, with, you know, you not being able to trust yourself. It it is a big deal and people don't understand that it's not just about the act. It's not just about the duration of how long that act happened. It is about how our body responds to that act and how our mind responds to other people not believing us and how we have to process that for the rest of our fucking lives. We have a fucking life sentence of PTSD and whatever else comes along with it that chronic inflammation in our bodies and we can't get any justice from the person that did this to us or the people that did this to us because our legal system sucks balls. They have no fucking clue how we feel as human beings who are having a life sentence here. Why can't we why can't we prosecute people who do these things who have multiple people talking and speaking up against them? Why can't they be held accountable? 
It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Have you guys read The Body Keeps the Score? Yes. Yep. I think it's important for people to understand, too, that um, you're, I, we know that, like, the left side of the brain is, like, the right side's the creative side. The left side is the... Rational, logical. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the side that works for me as much as the creative side. Um, so when you freeze, the right side of your brain lights up. It's, it's thinking of creative ways to survive. Mm-hmm. And as these situations arise, it, it's like a muscle memory mm-hmm. and it lights up quick. It remembers, this is how I reacted and I survived this, so this is how I'm going to react again. As we go through these things, it is very quick to light up. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of us have these these issues in our relationships is because that is how we have learned to to survive. Mm-hmm. And it lights up before we even have time to think logically whether or not we're reacting appropriately. Yeah. And the right side of the brain lights up and the left side almost shuts down because it is just in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, you guys. That's really yeah. kind of, you know, my story. And I, I, I mean, I reached out to you, Dana, and even Kendra, like mm-hmm. probably a year ago saying yeah. that this is something that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just really, I, I don't know if it wasn't the right time or what, but I, I appreciate you guys reaching out to me yeah. and asking me to, to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that I did. Like, as of right now, I, I'm not worried about what I said. I, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like I needed to get this off I've been carrying it around a long time and a lot of it isn't even something it's other people's burdens that I've been carrying Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm tired of doing that yeah so I hear you we we do the the podcast not to entertain right right like this is not about entertainment and to be honest, it's maybe not even as much about the listeners as it is about the, the survivor who tells their story. Mm-hmm. They're like, be our, everybody else dictates the narrative of our story our whole life. Mm-hmm. And even at times when we've told parts of our stories and we see people's eyes cloud over and they're no longer paying attention and you get that feeling that maybe you went too far and you should be quiet you know it's our story is always dictated to how much we're allowed to share how much people will tolerate of it Mm -hmm. and there 
this podcast in particular is about the survivor being able to tell the story start to finish, regardless of quality, regardless of entertainment value. We don't give two shits about that. It's being able to speak to speak out all of the words of our story in the way that we want to tell it and, and, and to kind of release it. Mm-hmm. And I think people are responding to that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of like, you know, the Oprah show for me. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. people out there who maybe this is just the beginning stage mm-hmm. and they, they need to be validated that, that their story matters, mm-hmm. that they will be believed, that there's other people out there who understand that the church is covering up abuse. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, it, it was good for me and therapeutic, but I know for a fact that as people listen to this podcast, it's helping them in ways that they don't know and maybe won't know for years, Mm -hmm. but it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Like we, we can't just have a podcast of Mia Kendra talking every week. (laughs) I mean, you could get those, get those. No, we can't. And start TikToking guys. Yeah. Yeah. We have Um, been TikToking a little bit. Yeah. I think I get too busy with work. Yeah, Kendra Kendra carries a big load of the work on this podcast. She she does a lot, and you know, the coolest thing about me and Kendra's relationship is that we both sort of understand where each other is at, and if if we need a break, we're going to take a break. You mm-hmm. know, we've always with this podcast, we we knew we wanted it to be authentic, and we didn't want it scripted. And we also knew that both of us have limitations, whether it's work, family, Mm -hmm. or physical limitations. And so we're going to do it when we do it, and then we're going to not do it when we don't do it. And it'll come out when it comes out, and we hope that everybody listens. And that's Mm -hmm. how it's going to be. Yeah. Well, it's on our terms, right? And if we're going to keep... If we're going to take care of ourselves, which, um, Esther, you should listen to this as well, right? <laughs> if we're going to take care of ourselves, or if we're going to take care of other people, we have to take care of ourselves first. If we don't take care of ourselves, then we're not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to keep doing this, because it's going to be too hard. Yeah, so we have a little bit of a rebellious nature, where, or at least <laughs> I do, where I'm, you know, we're not going to be told that it's got to come out every Monday at, at 5 o'clock, and... If we don't do that, then we're going to lose listeners. Yeah. You know, if we lose all the listeners but 10, then it's still about the survivor having the freedom to tell their story. And yeah. it's sort of like you put it in this time capsule, you've recorded it, and now you have this thing that mm-hmm. you have created. And that it's a special thing. And that's. Yeah. That's where the value lies in this, and that's what we care about. Yeah. The other part well, of that is that if you, when you read, or I'm sorry, when you listen to your story, Esther, um, 
I think the first time that I listened to my story after talking to Dana and, and us having our conversation about my story, it was really hard. It was hard. It was, I, I had to do it by myself. I had to listen to it um, and give myself uh, grace. And I also had to, um, I also realized that in listening to my story and listening to my, me telling my own story in my own words, it was validating because I was hearing myself tell myself that I was, I was right. I was, I should have been listened to. I should have been heard that this is, um, it's outrageous that we went through the things that we did or that I went through the things that I did and nobody else around me did the right thing. So I carry the burden. So it's validating to hear myself say that and say, you, you are good. You know, you've done everything Mm -hmm. that you possibly could. And the way you did it was the right way because it's the way you did it to survive. Right. Mm-hmm. And you survived. And I did. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody's story matters. Yes. You know? Definitely. It really does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my person I look up to out of everybody is Mr. Rogers, which mm-hmm. I feel like he really was an example of what he believed without being preachy, Uh you know? Yeah. And my dream is to travel the world Mr. Rogers style and just sit with people and let them tell their story. Yeah. Like, some will be good, some will be bad, some will be adventurous, but everybody's story matters. It does. So you started yes. your own podcast, is that what you said? No, oh. that's like my dream job oh. to like, okay. I want to contact freaking like National Geographic or D- the Discovery Channel and be like, send me all over the world <laughs> so that I can interview people. Yeah. <laughs> just, But yeah, it's, you know, a dream of mine. That's awesome. So, but thank you, you guys. I appreciate you yeah. holding space yeah, for me and being here with me so this was awesome thank, thank you. you for thank you yep. for your bravery for being so courageous and coming on you're welcome thanks for joining us on latter-day survivors you can follow us at latterdaysurvivors.org on facebook at latter-day survivors on instagram at latter-day survivors on tiktok we each have our own tiktok kindra's is latter-day survivors And mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LD Survivors. You can go to our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. And we also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him, too. We thank you guys for joining us, and we hope that you'll come back next time, that you'll share our podcast, and that you'll tell your friends. We are your hosts, Kendra Solani and Dana Brown, 
And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this.
opportunity to tell my story, I'm going to freaking tell it. 